is Our American Stories for the hour. Don Rickles celebrated a quote from Don Rickles to the New York Daily News in 1996. Quote, I like to think I'm the guy who goes to the office Christmas party on Friday night, insults everyone there, and still has his job on Monday morning. Actually, that was his job, to insult everybody equally, including himself, and make people laugh. Rickles was an American stand-up comedian, actor, and author. He became well-known as an insult comic and received widespread exposure as a popular guest on late-night talk shows. His appearances on Carson were the best. For the hour, we're going to hear from Mr. Warmth about his personal life, his thoughts on comedy, and political correctness. We'll also hear some of his hilarious stand-up routines that consisted of storytelling and his trademark ability to heckle anyone and everyone and anything that stood in front of him. We're also going to play for you the emotional and touching tribute that late-night host Jimmy Kimmel paid to this comedian and friend. But let's go now back to the year 1984, where Rickles is delivering his monologue on Saturday Night Live. But fair warning to those who might be sensitive to racial and ethnic humor, this was at a time when people understood that jokes were simply jokes and nothing more. Here's Don doing what he did best in the prime of his comedy career, roasting the audience at Saturday Night Live. It's a great city, you kidding? I was up in Harlem the other night and I said, just a, just a wallet. <laughs> Black brother said he knows about us. <laughs> I make jokes about the black people, and why not? Because I'm not one. <laughs> Look at the black chicks laughing. God bless you, baby. It's your town. Dancing and singing and booze and having a good time. Love you women when you make love. Yeah. <laughs> You gotta be like the you gotta be like the Jews. I'm gonna get a paper. You start. <laughs> Sighting night. Look at these people. All sitting around like dummies, right in the front going. <laughs> Look like you're rolling the toilet. Anybody in the magazine? <laughs> that's what it's about, New York. Italians, Jews, Irish, whatever the hell you are. You're people. That's what I love about this city. There's a chemistry. I swear to God, you're an are you an Irishman? Are you an Irish kid? What are you, a bird? <laughs> Got a jerk in the back. Hey, what do you say, Charlie? Are you Italian? Who's Italian? You Italian? <laughs> Where the hell were you in World War II? They could have used you. Remember what the Italians said in World War II? Run! <laughs> That's what it's about. Laugh at what people... That's what I do. I laugh at life. I swear. Are you an Italian kid? Are you Italian? The one with the flies all around. <laughs> Look at this. The Puerto Rican guy went, they didn't recognize me. <laughs> we need the Puerto Ricans. For what? <laughs> oh, yeah. To stand around going, Tana, Maria! Maria, Maria, Maria! And the Puerto Rican guy's in the alley going... Yeah, heavy for you, huh, kid? Look at you, you're a real moron sitting there. You know. Kids in the front going, what a night, what a night. Where you from, young fella? Chicago. Trouble. <laughs> you're not Italian? No, sir. Jewish? No, sir. French? No, sir. What are you? Swedish. Swedish. 
damn it, I don't have a joke for that. <laughs> well, uh, kiss my yump and yiminy. Anyway. Now the Swedes are great. You put too many holes in the cheese, though. I'll tell you this. It's the whole thing. <laughs> you know why I'm laughing? Because I know what's coming next, that I'm so funny. Hey! That's the whole thing, no matter what. Where, where are you from, my friend? You're, you're Chinese, right? Chinese? This girl here? If you're not, get your eyes fixed. <laughs> Look at a Chinese boy sitting there going, who's Chinese? Who's Chinese? We gotta make a fuss of them, otherwise they burn the shirts. <laughs> That's why you burn the shirts with the iron. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't care what you are. You're fat. I'll tell you this. Take a look. Is he laughing? If you see a guy with a little Nazi emblem looking like a tank coming towards me, call me. No, I make fun. You're a heavy set guy. I swear. Yeah, there's a new thing out called cottage cheese. Anyway, uh, I can picture this big fella making love to the wife. She lays on the bed and she goes, No! No! Hey, may I come in the audience a minute to say hello? You're nice people, really. I must say that. I gotta tell you that. How are you, amigo? Spanish, Spanish, Spanish. Que pasa, Serena, cariño? See, they're laughing, and one of their guys is up in my room now, taking my jewelry. Anyway. Uh... And there you have it. That's about everything you need to know about Rickle stand-up. Nobody was immune from a joke or excluded from a joke, and he was Jewish. And if you notice. There it was, making fun of his own people before he made fun of anyone else. And everybody knows he was kidding. And that's at least all everybody knew who was going to pay. And who was Don Rickles? That's the question. That's what we're going to spend the hour on, some of his material. But the life, the man, where he grew up. He was born to Jewish parents in Queens, New York, on May 8, 1926. His father, Max, emigrated in 1903 with his Lithuanian parents from the Russian Empire. And his mother, Etta, was born in New York City to Austrian immigrant parents. Rickles grew up in Jackson Heights, New York. And by the way, that's in a Queens neighborhood at the time that was filled with every possible immigrant group living on top of one another. Here, Don Rickles tells us about growing up with his mother and father. Well, it's not much of a story because Jackson Heights, I, I was, uh, the school was right, right opposite where we lived. And I only child, and we had, uh, my father was a wonderful kind of guy. He, he passed away very young. Oddly enough, he passed away on the street in New York, and my cousin at that time was an intern at Bellevue. And he was in an ambulance, and he came, not knowing it was my father, and tried to bring him back to life. Anyway, so, and my mother was a woman that did this. Some of these days, she went to a party and just stood up. And, You're gonna miss me, honey. She loved to <laughs> kid around and entertain. And so, too, did Don Rickles. And you're going to learn more about the other side of Mr. Warmth, the other side of the insult comic extraordinaire, Don Rickles, whose act today would be outlawed in college campuses across this country, who made so many millions of us laugh. More of his life story after these messages. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, the story of Don Rickles, celebrated for the hour here on Our American Stories. Don Rickles' father, Max, as we just learned, passed away at a young age. Here, Rickles talks about learning of his father's death. I was about in my late 30s. Yeah, and I, I was in a place in Washington, a little joint. A little, in those days, they called it a striptease place. And my cousin came, and I was backstage ready to go on. And he said, now forget it. He passed on two rest or so. And he came on and he said, Don, Dad. I said, I'm going on, Jerry, not now. I gotta tell you, Dad just died. And I said, Really? He said, Yeah. Hmm. And I went out on the stage, and the Almighty must have been watching. I did the best show in this joint they ever saw in their life. And then when I came back, I realized what happened, and I, I, I took it very hard. I was very close to my father. I don't know if it made me any different. My mother had more of an influence on me than my, my dad. My dad was, was a wonderful guy, but my mother ran the ship. She was, a, I call her the Jewish Patton. She had full command. She, uh, she'd walk into a room and she'd be noticed. My mother was really the influential person to make me come out and do what I do. And I, I really wanted to be an actor because I didn't know too much. And by the way, the Jewish pattern, you can't beat it. Talking about his early years, Don Rickles describes always being able to make friends because he was funny. He also got his first comedy gigs by performing, as he just described, at strip clubs. I had a knack of always uh, not being successful in schoolwork, unfortunately, but uh, uh, to win over friends. I, I worked in the toughest places you could imagine. I mean, guys would say, hey, the kid's funny, you know. And if they didn't like you, they let you know. But I, I was always able to handle it in those days, hecklers and so forth. Not, and not with uh, up your kazoo and all that stuff they, they do today. And, and, they, and I don't put the young kids down. And people laugh at it, so fine. But I've never done that. I, I, I didn't believe in that, and I still don't. But I, I, uh, when I say tough play, you know, people were, were just uh, not nightclub people, just people that came in for a drink and said, oh, there's a guy up there who's going to kid around, you know. And little by little, you know, it caught on. I was a busy little guy, but a lot of women, the, the ones that were kind of decent and beautiful and nice, were scared to death of me. Scared to death of me. They thought, oh, that's the guy that's going to make fun of you, you know. And I finally met my beautiful wife, Barbara. And, and she, was a, she was a very, uh, she still is, thank God, very smart and bright lady. And uh, she understood my humor, you know. And that's the story there. Rickles would eventually go on to play at the famous Copacabana. Here he describes how it all happened at gunpoint. The Copacabana was uh, certainly no strip joint. Uh, it was, uh, there's a little story to that. I, the first time I went to the Copa, I, I met Jules Podell, who ran the Copa. And I said, Mr. Podell, it's nice to meet you. Forgive the impersonation, but let's wait to talk. I, I don't want any kid in my joint that makes fun of people and calls them dummies and yo-yos. I don't need that crap. Joe, nothing no, nothing personal, but this kid can't come near my joint. I don't want to see him. I don't want to bother me and leave me alone and I love him. I'll have a drink on me and goodbye. I said, well, Joe, I'm not going to work the coke. And Joe said, he had a high voice like a bird. Don't worry, I'm going to take care of it, you know. Put a dress on him. You thought it was a girl. Anyway, so he said, I'll take care of it. Don't worry, Don. Next day, 
the phone rang, and he said, Mr. Podell would like to see you. And I said, oh, geez, what's going to be now? So I went to the coop, and we sat in the lounge, had a drink. He said, I want you to know you're one of the finest, funniest comedians in the world. I've been all over the country. You are now going to be part of the Copacabana family. Say any damn thing you want. Well, the punchline was, some guys from Brooklyn, you know, their guns were being oiled. And so they, they called him and said, Jules, we like this kid, boom. And next thing you know, I was starring in the Copacabana. I made it a little shorter, but that's pretty much what, what happened. And every time I went on, he'd make me come in the kitchen. The one of the funniest kids in the world. Boom. <laughs> have a glass of whiskey. But uh, those were great days, the Copacabana. Rickles was close friends with Frank Sinatra and other people who were known at the time for their connections to the mafia. Here's Don talking about Sinatra's notorious temper. He had his moods, you know. I loved him. I was sorry. See, many people were frightened of him because he had a temper, you know. But to know him, if he loved you, there was no gray area. In other words, he'd say, Dan, you're the best. Well, forget about it. He, you know, he was a gentleman to you, but you, you never could be his friend. And, and with me, I, I was very blessed to have, uh, have his friendship. Rickles was branded as an insult comic early on, but he doesn't necessarily agree with that term insult here in this clip. The word insult stuck with me. I really don't... See, nobody would come to a theater and if I said something terrible about you and it wasn't funny and it wasn't uh, sensible, he, he wouldn't be there. The idea is that people know, unless you live under a rock, if I say to you, Dan, I'm going to be a friend, the tie in the shirt, it's weak, take it off. Now... I'm not saying you're a moron. I do say to a guy, don't be a moron. You know, it's the way you say things. My father had that gift. It's not mean-spirited, and it's obvious unless you live under a rock. It's a joke. It's, a, you know, if I say to a guy, uh, is that the wife? And I go, ooh, have you thought about a hospital? You know, the guy's laughing like you. He's laughing. Why? Because I'm not mean. I'm not, he knows it's a joke, you know. But I worked in many places. At the beginning, I said, good evening, in Montreal, Canada, going, you, he called my wife an idiot. Get him out of here. You know, and I used to be on, on the plane a lot. It didn't catch on one, two, three. You know, but, that, but, that, but that's what I did. In other words, I did impressions, and nobody laughed, and I can't to this day really tell a joke. But I would, like I'm talking to you, and things would happen. I'd look at the audience, and every night my show does change. There's a beginning, middle, and ending. But every night it changes. It's according to what's in front of me, you know. Indeed, Rickles has always been about laughter. Here, he tells a story about a joke his mother told from her deathbed. I was always that way. And even in school, even with my friends, uh, I find life can be funny. Things in sadness make me laugh, you know. Uh, not because I'm heartless, certainly not. Uh, when my mother passed away, my mother, my mother made me laugh when she was dying, rest her soul. She was in the hospital with masks and everything. And she was only in her late 70s in those days, you know. And, uh, and she had emphysema, bad. And I said, Doctor, how is he? He said, oh, no. I said, can I go in and talk to her? I said, yeah. And it's a true story. And I walked by, I said, Mom, dear, it's me. And she lifted up the mask and she said, it's that slow in New Vegas? She always made me feel good. She yelled at me a lot. In other words, I ran away from home once in Jackson Heights. And I forget, she lifted up the window, Dan, and yelled out. I went to the bus stop, and she said, you forgot your sweater. 
It's that slow in Vegas. And that's where Rickles got his humor from. It's called dark humor. By the way, for many Jews, dark humor was a refuge. I mean, when you think about Mel Brooks's masterpiece, uh, many people at the time that the producers came out, and that's his epic film and that got turned into a play, is a mockery of Hitler. And it, it made fun of Nazis, and it got people to laugh about Nazis. And a lot of people were offended at this. But Mel Brooks had the best line. He was, I am not going to let Hitler rule over me. We will laugh at Hitler. And those of you who don't like it, don't go and see the producers. That was always the answer. Uh, it isn't these days. Not many things could get a guy like Don Rickles down, except for one thing. When he lost one of his children. I lost my son. I don't want to get too emotional, but he was only 40 years old, and he was everything to us. And he has a sister, thank God, and she has two children. She's great. And to lose a son at 40, then God forbid you should. It was a horror. It, it, it absolutely broke my heart. I, honest to God, from the days of recognizing what life was about, from the day I, in World War II, that I was in the Navy under a little pressure, so to speak, with sorrow, I was always able to handle that. Always. Uh, my son is the only time that I fell apart a little bit, but always able to handle that. And I never think of death. Now, I go to sleep at night, and sometimes I say, will I wake up in the morning? And then you read in the paper, 92, Charlie, Eddie, boom, you know, dying all around you, and you say, gee, What's going to be, you know? That's the only time I, I ever think about death at my age. And there you have it, the serious side of a serious man who did something very serious for a living, and that is making people laugh. Try it sometime on a stage. It's not easy. And try teasing people on their ethnicities, on very personal things, and still have them love you. Because that's what he did. When we come back, more on this remarkable comic talent. Don Rickles, celebrating his life, celebrating his story, here on Our American Stories. our American stories, the life of Don Rickles. We continue here. On April 6, 2017, Don Rickles died of kidney failure at his home in Beverly Hills, California. He was 90 years old. And that same night, Jimmy Kimmel went on the air live to deliver this heartfelt tribute to his friend. It was a real moment of pure and beautiful human emotion that is rarely seen on TV sets or anywhere else in the media. For that matter. Take a listen. Well, <laughs> there I go, right? Thank you for coming. It's not going to be our usual show tonight because, and I'm going to tell you right in front, I'm going to cry. I'm already crying, uh, which is embarrassing, but, uh, uh, well, I'm not good with this sort of thing. And uh, I'm sorry, especially to those of you who came to see the show in person, but because uh, it's probably not what you came for, but we lost someone that we and I love very much today. 
And again, I'm sorry for hearing this just now for the first time, but Don Rickles passed away this morning. And uh, he was 90 years old. And I know it sounds crazy to say he was, he was too young, but it, he, he was because he was uh, youthful and funny and sharp and generous. And I, I was fortunate enough to not only have Don on this show as my guest, but also to become close to him and his wife, Barbara, which was a lot of fun for me. I grew up in Las Vegas, so Don Rickles, even when I was a kid, was a very big deal. Was, his name was on the marquee at the Sahara Hotel. You see him with Johnny Carson, making fun of Johnny, making fun of Frank Sinatra. And um, people always wanted to hear Don tell Sinatra stories, and he had great stories. But, um, and I think this might be what brought us here, because I told Don, and this is honestly how I felt, like the Sinatra stories are great, but if Sinatra was here, I'd be asking him for stories about you. In this remarkable monologue and tribute to the loss of his hero and friend, Jimmy Kimmel recalls a story about the time when Don Rickles got an angry Frank Sinatra to calm down by cracking a joke. Well, Bob Newhart, Don's good friend, Bob Newhart, another national treasure, told me a great story about having dinner with Don and Sinatra that sums Don up pretty well, I think. Sinatra would sometimes get angry uh, for whatever reason and flip out. So one night, they were all at a big table at a very fancy restaurant, and the restaurant was all white. Everything was white. The walls of the tablecloths, everything. And Don and uh, Barbara, his wife, and Bob and his wife, Ginny, were at the table. And Frank was drinking, and he was not in a good mood. He was getting surly, which put everyone on edge. When Frank wasn't happy, you had to watch it. So they're drinking, and the food comes, and the waiter brings a bottle of ketchup and puts it on the table in front of Frank. And for whatever reason... This sends Frank into a rage. He takes, he doesn't want ketchup on the table, so he takes the bottle, and a very crowded, elegant restaurant, he throws it at the wall, and the bottle smashes, and there's ketchup everywhere, and everyone in the restaurant stops. There's like a gasp. And Don, without missing a beat, turns and says, Frank, will you pass the ketchup? <laughs> and, and Sinatra laughs. And everyone laughs, and nobody dies that night, thanks to Don. Kimmo, holding back tears the best that he could, tells a story here about a hilarious dinner encounter that he had with Don Rickles. The first time Don was on our show was almost... Um, uh, uh, four, four years after uh, we started, we'd... Um, we'd been trying to book him since the beginning. We asked him to do the show over and over again, and he didn't know what this was. He knew The Tonight Show and Letterman, and that's it. But finally, after we bothered him like 20 times, he gave up, and he did the show for my birthday in 2006, and it was exciting. It was like I was in some kind of talk show host fantasy camp, sitting behind a desk with, while Don Rickles made fun of me. It was like, you know, being... It was like being a real talk show host for a minute. So, <laughs> And then Don came to visit 17 more times after that, and whenever he was on, we would go out to dinner... Um, we would always go out to dinner after the show, except for one night. I couldn't go because I was already going to dinner. It was a like a late booking. I was going to dinner with my friend Jeff Ross, the comedian. It was his 50th birthday, and he's only in town for like the night. So a few days beforehand, I told Don, I can't go to dinner after the show because I already have plans. We'll go another night. I couldn't tell him I was going to another dinner with someone else, or he would bust my balls till I had none left. So I was nonspecific. I just said, I can't make it. So we made plans for another night. And after the show, I said goodbye to Don. And I went to dinner with Jeff. And Jeff and I and my cousin Sal are sitting at the table. 
And who walks in? <laughs> and not only walks in, is seated at the table right next to us. Is Don. He looks at me. He's like, I thought you couldn't go to dinner. And I'm like, it's his birthday. I didn't know. And he hammered me and heckled me through the whole meal. Until finally, I just got up and moved over to his table. And Kimmel continues to pour his heart out with some fond memories he had of Don Rickles. He made fun of everybody. He would come here, he'd make fun of, of me, Guillermo, the band, the audience, the guy who put the microphone on his lapel. The, he'd make fun of the vegetable platter in his dressing room. He, when he'd come to my house, he'd yell about the stairs as if I put them there specifically <laughs> to inconvenience him. Every time I'd see him, he'd go, you still have those stairs? <laughs> No, we're pole vaulting into the house now, Don. <laughs> I once took him to Moza, which is Mario Batali's restaurant here. It's a very nice restaurant. We rented the private room in the back. We had food. I invited his friends. It was beautiful. It was very expensive, okay? And I paid for it. At the end of the meal, after the end, at the end of this beautiful meal, he, he says to me, I'll never forget, he goes, I can't believe you took me to a pizza place. <laughs> But he was very sweet. They called him Mr. Warmth as a joke, but he, that was what he was. He would always ask about um, my parents, my kids. Um, when my Uncle Frank passed away, I called him and asked him to be the guest on that show, and, uh, which was a tough show. When, um, and he helped all of us through it. He gave me advice, and good advice, not the advice people give you just to hear themselves giving you advice. He would always say, keep my name alive, which um, he'd, he'd tell me to keep his name alive, which I thought was funny because, you know, I was like, you're Don Rickles. You keep my name alive. My <laughs> and in closing, Kimmel shared some of the personal letters that Don Rickles had mailed him over the years. I saved every note he ever sent me. There were like 27 notes and letters from Don, and I want to read a couple of them. Um, by the way, every time he sent me a card, he'd send it in an overnight mail package, and it, there'd be a label on it. It cost twenty dollars every time. He didn't just, just put, he spent more than five hundred dollars on postage alone for me. So, here are a few of these very expensive uh, notes. Uh, Dear Jimmy, thanks so much for inviting me in, to your home for dinner. But to be honest, we would have preferred a three-month trip to Venice, Italy. Dear Jimmy, thanks so much for the beautiful frame of you and I. Who needs Sinatra? Your picture, your picture of us together is much more important. Please don't show this note to anyone because it could cause harm to me and my family. <laughs> Love, Don. <laughs> Jimmy, thank you so much for the bottles of wine. We've been so busy crushing grapes with our bare feet, <laughs> hoping to have wine for the holidays. And you came to the rescue just in time. <laughs> Dear Jimmy, what a great, thoughtful gift for Christmas. Such a good Italian. Maybe you should open a deli and start selling salami. <laughs> Maybe I should. <laughs> Dear Jimmy, uh, we watched your Academy Awards show. Uh, Barbara loved every bit of it. But here's what I thought. <laughs> you were on camera too much. <laughs> all in all, it was okay. We love you, so don't worry. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And that tells you who Don Rickles really was. And for all those who get uptight at a joke, a reference about their ethnicity, get over it. 
Have a laugh. Because that laughter represents love. When we can kid each other about things about each other that are personal, it means we care about one another. And that was the real Mr. Warmth. The life of Don Rickles here on Our American Stories. A life like no other. Our American Stories, and speaking of late-night TV, Don Rickles was well-known for his appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Here's the time when Rickles surprised Carson, who was then interviewing Frank Sinatra on The Tonight Show in November of 1976. Rickles started joking with Sinatra about the nefarious dealings he had with the mob. Hey, Frank, it's good to see you. Uh, I, I, I just I just was hanging around in the hall, and I, I said, Frank Sinatra's here. I've never met him, you know. Never and I get the chill. You'll excuse us, won't you? Certainly, know? certainly. Marco Mangananzo was hurt. <laughs> Marco Mangananzo? Fombino Bombazzo. <laughs> Two bullets in the head Thursday. <laughs> now this, this you don't believe. Excuse us, Johnny, you're, you're from the Midwest. You're busy going, is the truck loaded? <laughs> Guido says hi. He hasn't had a chance to talk to you. And from Jersey City, your good friend, Bubani Umbazzo. What's he his started alias? his car. <laughs> he started his car with your album on, and now he's a highway. Oh, that's funny. But I tell you, I'm a Jew and you're an Italian. And here we have what? <laughs> And this is a great Irishman. This is America. Yes, sir. And that's why I just want to say, before we go any further, <laughs> for 14 years, Johnny Carson kept saying, do you really know Frank? And I want you to know, Frank, I worship you and I love you. I really mean this. Because since I'm a kid, I used to blow in girls' ears and hear you go, la-da-da-dee, and do it my way. I need a girl so bad. <laughs> I love my wife, but she's ill. <laughs> But you just got married, Frank. I just can't picture him on the wedding night standing in the room going, And did it all, and I suppose it's my way. And by the way, in this same scene, Sinatra gets one right on the kisser from Don Rickles, not once but twice. And I mean, one of them is like a French kiss, practically. And no one had ever, no one would hug Sinatra. Rickles jumped in there and kissed him on the lips. And Carson fell off his seat. And not much made Carson fall off his seat. When Rickles was done with all that, Sinatra then turned the tables. And he had his own story about Don Rickles. Can I, listen... Can I tell a story about sure. what this man did to me once? You may have known or heard about this. It was a true story. This was a long time ago, long before Don got married. I was eating dinner in a restaurant in New York, and uh, 
Uh, I was sitting with some friends, and he came over to the table, and he said, Frank, do me a favor, will you? He said, I'm sitting with a very pretty girl, and uh, I'm trying to make out, you know. And he said, I told her I know you, and she really doesn't believe me. Would you stop by the table? I said, all right. I was just about finished. I was down to the espresso. And I finally he went back, and I walked by the table, and I said, how are you, Don? Nice to see you. He said, can't you see I'm eating, Frank? What are you doing? <laughs> Rickles was the ultimate roast master. He can make fun of anybody at any time without even thinking about it. I mean, imagine, even in his private life, he was spoofing Sinatra with no audience, just an audience of one, a girl he barely knew. Here is Don Rickles roasting, of all people, Clint Eastwood, right to his face. Clint, I say it, nobody else has said it, and I say it from my heart. You're a lousy actor. Spielberg and all these guys at the table, we know Clint, I know you. Clint's idea of a good time is sitting on a pickup truck watching his dog bark. (laughs) Mother Eastwood is laughing, knowing damn well you never had so much money in your whole life. (laughs) But you know, Clint, and I know that I have so much on you, which I won't say tonight. Because if I spill it out, you're going to be back in Rawhide. (laughs) And now you're in your late 60s. Live up to it. It's over. It didn't matter if you were a famous actor, a police officer, a taxi driver, or the future president of the United States. Here's a clip of Don Rickles roasting then-governor of California, Ronald Reagan. You, governor, are a great man. You can tell because you don't see many governors with clip-on bow ties. <laughs> hey, fun is fun. There are many people that are planted around here to look like they enjoy this. <laughs> but Dean Martin said to me when Governor Reagan or Regan, whatever they call you, Reagan. <laughs> I don't care. (laughs) What do I care what they call you? You're the governor, and if I got a cousin getting the chair, you better make that phone call. (laughs) But I say this from my heart, Governor. I've met you once in the hallway at NBC, as you remember. And I'll never forget your words. Get out of the way, kid. I kid you, sir. You are a politician. Black, white, Jew, Gentile. We're all working for one cause. To figure out how you became governor. Fantastic. And in a Don Rickles tribute that aired on 2014, in 2014, film director Martin Scorsese and actor Robert De Niro paid their respects to Rickles in the only way you can. And by the way, folks, that's Scorsese and De Niro paying tribute by giving him a good laugh. I met Don sometime before we were both cast in Casino. It was a different world back then. There was affirmative action for Jews. No one had told Steven Spielberg he had to hire more Italians for Schindler's List. But in 1984, Universal said we needed more Jews in the picture. 
What? We don't have enough Jews in the picture? Alan King and Sharon Stone? What are they? Chopped liver? <laughs> Turns out Sharon Stone wasn't even Jewish. With a name like that. Ooh, you know. So we had to get another Jew. We didn't need a star. We needed uh, just a Jew who would, you know, work cheap and who would... We, we, could, we could bury in a, in a bit part. A couple of lines in the background and a few shots, you know, like that. So. Jackie Mason wasn't available, so who do we get? Don Rickles. It, it was a true collaboration. Right, Don? <laughs> Me doing some of my best acting of my career. And Don standing in the background in some of my biggest scenes. I mean, I, I love Don then. I love him now. But Don is something rare. A true friend, a wonderful human being. If he weren't, he would never be able to get away with being such an asshole. <laughs> and here's Martin Scorsese with De Niro at his side with his bit to say about Don Rickles. Bob and I did like eight pictures together. Um, we would put everything we had into each. And we'd always be excited about doing the next one. Then we did Casino with Don 20 years ago. <laughs> and we haven't worked together since. <laughs> now, it's amazing. It's amazing, Don, the influence you've had on our careers. Yeah, Don, on behalf of Leo DiCaprio, thanks a lot. <laughs> now, Chris. <laughs> Now, when, when Bob De Niro and I are on, on the same stage together these days, it's usually to give each other lifetime achievement awards. So we see each other mainly at award ceremonies and memorial services. <laughs> like tonight. <laughs> we wanted to honor your memory, Don, so here we are. Though if I'd been directing this, I don't think I would have gone for the open casket. Rest in peace, old friend. <laughs> and you hear those laughs, and you wonder, where are those laughs today? Do people know each other well enough to have enough fun with each other like that? And what a better way to pay tribute to this man than to leave you with these parting words from Scorsese and De Niro, roasting the comic, the legend, the genius that he was, Don Rickles. I, I was asked to speak a little about what it's like to direct you. Uh, it's difficult because nobody can direct Don Rickles. I mean, directors just hand him over to the set decorator and they put him in, you know, where he do the least damage. <laughs> Actually, no. I mean, having Don on the set and in all those shots lent a real presence to the film. He was a direct line to the 1970s uh, Las Vegas and Casino. The town was a character in that, in that movie. And Don, you were the link to that town. You know, you gave it authenticity. You gave it a sense of danger. That was the theory, anyway. <laughs> I, it worked. Don's a real thing. He was there when, when the mob ran Vegas. He was court jester to the Rat Pack. And yes, he knew Sinatra, and, and he managed to say it in every damn sentence he ever said. Yeah, I knew Frank. Frank loved me. There was Frank in my front row. Frank always came to see me. I told Frank this. I told Frank that. I'm so f sick of hearing about Frank Sinatra. Enough already. Enough already. 
Don Rickles' life story. Robert De Niro telling just one of many great stories. A life well lived. We celebrate Don Rickles' story here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to the arts, from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll put them up on the air. This next one comes from a guy named Kevin Cox, who likes to call himself the Brooklyn Cowboy. And Kevin's story centers around horse racing and his dad's annual tradition of taking the family to the oldest major sporting venue of any kind in America, Saratoga Racetrack. It would all start with a list. A few days before we'd leave, it would be on my father's dresser. Q-tips, Listerine, pens, socks, underwear, and on and on it went. One would think he was Jimmy Hoffa going away for a stretch, but in reality, It was how he would prepare for our two-night excursion to Saratoga year after year. Obviously, normative society doesn't feel compelled to itemize the most trivial minutia for a 48-hour pass to Nirvana. But this wasn't just any Saratoga fan. This was the Uber fan, the greatest Saratoga fan outside of that one in your family, or your co-worker's family, or maybe your neighbor. You get the idea. We'd shove off at 5.15 in the morning, a time that didn't work for me then and works even less for me now. He, on the other hand, was as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as whatever bushy-tailed is supposed to mean. We'd roll into town too early to check in, but that was okay because we'd go right to the Spa City Diner for breakfast. Traditions, you know. After breakfast, he'd be at the table performing origami with his brand new racing form, ripping out the tracks not needed, and then refolding it so it fit perfectly into the back pants of his shorts pocket. Which, of course, were accessorized with matching loafers because isn't that what fathers do? We'd then check into the best-kept sequin in town, the Brentwood Motel, located a horseshoe's throw from the seven-furlong shoot of the racetrack, and across the street from some breakfast joint, which is now the hot spot to go to after the races. Assuming, of course, that you don't want to hear what someone six inches away from you was saying. He would take me to watch the horses enter the starting gate in the morning. It wasn't our place to venture farther than that, you know. But that was okay, because that was a world to an eight-year-old. We'd head over to the races and go right upstairs to make sure the plastic owls hanging from the rafters hadn't flown off during the winter. Of course they hadn't, but tradition, you know. We'd meander over to the Big Red Spring for a funny-tasting water, but you didn't mind it because they'd give you these nifty red-and-white souvenir cups, a tradition that has since gone the way of periodontist mouth-rinsing Dixie cups, but what are you going to do? We'd watch him get saddled before the race, then he'd watch me try to get an autograph from a jockey who was just beaten by 30. 
we'd go and sit by the same area in the paddock under the tree, which was a nice little tradition, until somebody needed a condominium built there. On rainy days, we'd scoot to a bench under the old scratch board inside from where the band shell is. Yes, men would walk out on a catwalk and write all the changes and results on a giant board, then go back through a door that was as mysterious to me as to how that quarter kept ending under my pillow through the years. Can you taste the twin lobsters, Pat? He would gleefully say throughout the day to my mother and the months leading up to that day, as tradition dictated that we dine at the long-gone Weathervane restaurant. $9.95 they were, with a coupon from the pink sheet. He never bought a pink sheet, but we always ended up with the coupon somehow. He made sure that he had the last bite of the last lobster on the table. Not because he was pacing himself, mind you, but because tradition said that he had to torture my mother over it. We'd play a round of mini-golf afterwards at Murphy's right next door. It's still there these days. Think hard enough and you can remember the sounds of your old man holding one out on the ski ball hole. Maybe it wasn't a successful day at the track for the $10, you bet. Well, maybe you got snubbed on a few autographs, but you didn't care because you were in receipt of something much more valuable at the time. Something passed on that you can never lose or forget or put a price tag on. Those days are long gone, and my father is as well. When he moved on, I asked Bill Nader of the New York Racing Association if we could do a race dedication for him and have a plaque put by where my parents sat. Gee, Kevin, that may be hard, he glumly said in his office. If we did that, then everyone would want one. When was his birthday, he asked. August 13, I told him. After an odd stare and a substantial pause, he said, That was my father's birthday. Where do you want the plaque? Something about fathers and sons. The plaque was unveiled. The race was won. And who was the winner? The daddy, of course. Why wouldn't it be? Every year afterwards, my mother would sit there during her summer sojourns getting as close to him as possible, a catharsis of sorts. On the night of her passing a few years ago, just before she left, during the Saratoga meet, no less, I said, Mom, just give me any sign that you're with him and that all is well, that you're both happy. Two hours later, I entered her house only to find it burglarized. Only it wasn't burglarized at all. A picture had fallen off the wall and landed unbroken on the floor. It was the winner's circle photo of the daddy with my mother in it. They were together again in his favorite place and the list wasn't needed to ensure a good time. So today I'll give the plaque a bit of a shine and sit there and sip a beer with Bijou just as I have done every year because tradition dictates it, you know. And that was Kevin Cox, a.k.a. the Brooklyn Cowboy, who, by the way, became a police officer at the NYPD, an agent for horse jockeys, and is currently a professional gambler. The Brooklyn Cowboy was even featured on the Esquire Network program Horse Players as they followed his life as a horse handicapper. And it all started with his dad, Walter Bijou Cox, and this beautiful place called Saratoga Racetrack. And by the way, uh, it's not just fathers and sons. My little girl and I, well, it's always Santa Anita. 
during the winter break, and I take her to L.A., and we watch that very first race. Del Mar, I'll take her to Belmont, and before she leaves home, she'll have seen it all, all the great tracks in this country. A little touch of America, Brooklyn meets upstate New York, the beautiful town of Saratoga, the remarkable place that is Saratoga Racetrack, the Cox family story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from all across this great country about what people do for a living and their hobbies. Sometimes the two actually intersect. We read about a fellow named Michael Rafino in Southern California who spent more than a decade rowing gondolas on cruises and in races. And by the way, I've dabbled in kayaks, and I can barely get straight through a still lake. Mike, how did you get started as a gondolier? And tell us a bit about the gondola cruises that you offer. When I first started doing it, yeah, I had to get trained. You know, there's kind of a, a way to the style of rowing that you have to kind of figure out the, the physics of it and kind of the rhythm of it. Generally what happens, and this happened with me as well, is you go out on the water your first time, you try to row, and you just spin in a circle going nowhere, getting really frustrated. You know, the oar is only on one side of the boat the power and the steering comes from the same side of the boat. So you really have to learn to control going like hard left, slowly back to the right, hard left, slowly back to the right, hard left, slowly back to the right, and you get that rhythm down, and eventually you can go straight. But it does take a little bit of just spinning in a circle, being like, this is bull crap, I don't want to do this. Like, yeah, it's a little bit frustrating when you first learn. And then you have your, you know, you get trained for a while, you have your kind of like gondolier tests, you know, like one of the things we had to do is we had to like go under this bridge that has this opening that's not that, not like we go under the, the pylons of the bridge and, you know, you have to be able to dock well and, and it's tough. I mean, there are still some things that happened. Uh, last fall, we had a newer gondolier that was out with a crew and the wind picked up so bad that he just couldn't row the boat back. And so some of us more seasoned gondoliers had to row out get him and row the boat back for him it does take a little bit of getting used to in training but and the people that we have out you know people celebrating special occasions birthdays maybe a date we do a lot of engagements like i've seen a lot of people get engaged on my boat and which is really cool to see because usually it's something that no one has like a front row seat for Uh, and even sometimes we get to be involved in the actual process itself like we'll do a message in a bottle thing where it's like, you know, ahead of time, the groom will write out a little message and give it to us and we'll prepare a bottle. And later in the cruise, she'll see this bottle in the water and she'll pull the bottle out of the water. Lo and behold, there's a note. As she's reading the note, he drops down on one knee. Boom, there's a ring. It's really cool. It's where really- were you for me when I was engaged? Mine was so lame compared to that. Oh, my goodness. Where were you when I needed you? It's it, it you know it's it's funny like it, it sounds like a, a a cool idea but there's some there it doesn't always go smoothly <laughs> let me tell you there was this one guy I couldn't believe this I never had anything like this happen before but we're supposed to do a message and model we're waiting to do the thing at some point the guy turns back because you know we do it like they don't really know when we're gonna do the message and model thing we do it uh 
you know, at a certain point in the cruise where there's spots in the harbor where there's not too much tide and not too much wind. So we're rowing to the spot and he turns around and looks at me. He goes, do you have it? And I go, yes. And then she goes, have what? And he goes, nothing. We go later in the cruise and we do the message in a bottle thing. She gets the message in a bottle. Of course, she says yes. They're all happy. And then like five minutes later, he looks back at me and he goes, did I ruin it? And she looks back and I'm like, what do you want me to say, man? Like, do you think, do you think she's like so simple that, you know, that she would buy the, do you have what? Oh, nothing. Well, obviously it's something if I know what he's talking about and I responded to it. And there's been a couple times where the bottle ended up in the water and like I have to make a couple of attempts to go get it. They don't always grab it out of the water right away. And man, I had one person, one girl, I was like, oh, it looks like there might be a message in that bottle right there. Would you mind grabbing it? And she goes, I'm not touching that. It's garbage. <laughs> and the guy looks back at me and I'm like, tell her like, oh, just grab it. It's okay. It's not garbage. Yeah, I'm out of here now. It's up to you, buddy. Did anyone ever, did any woman ever say no? You know, I have not had any no's, but uh, some other gondoliers have. The last thing you would want if the person ended up saying no would be to spend another half an hour sitting right next to them on a boat that there's no escape from. It's a long way back to the dock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I haven't had it happen, but I've heard it's just... I mean, it's just miserable for everyone, including the gondolier. Like, <laughs> including the gondolier. So you're, you're a gondolier, or do you sing? Yes. Does the guy say, hey, I need this song, start singing, you know, Love Me Do, or I Will Always Love You, or Back That Thing Up, or whatever they ask you to sing? You know, we. so it's kind of uh, an interesting thing. There are some gondola kind of standards that we sing, but we really have to kind of be uh, careful with music licensing. You know, we can't sing everything you know so i i actually i sing uh original songs that i wrote a long time ago and then translated into italian and that's mostly what i sing just to kind of like keep myself covered from that kind of stuff i mean and i like them and i get really good feedback on the songs and it's italian so no one knows what i'm saying anyway but you know we sing like o solo mio and some of the kind of standards but mostly i personally sing originals for them well, that's great. And let's talk about now, ultimately, a competitive strain in this comes out. It turns out gondoliers compete, and there's such a thing as gondola competitions. Uh, talk about how you got into that, and how many people are doing this around the country? The number of people around the country that do it kind of varies depending on where we're having it. We're trying to have like every different gondola company host some year, so it's kind of been bouncing around a little bit. And Three years ago, it was in Stillwater, Minnesota, and there was a little bit less of a turnout there. Last year, it was in Providence, and there was a huge turnout. The year before that, it was in Huntington, and there was a big turnout. So it just kind of depends on who's hosting it and who all can make the trip. Uh, but it originally started actually in Providence. The, the idea being in, in Venice, they actually have gondola races all the time, and we would like to grow the sport here to the point where the Italians invite us to compete in their competitions. Maybe in our lifetimes it could get to the Olympic level, which would be really cool. You know, in my lifetime, both dragon boat racing and curling have become Olympic events. 
supposedly that beanbag game is on the way. So if that can do it, I feel like Gondola can make it to the Nationals, or to the Olympics. But first we need to have international competitions. So the Providence people started it, I think, like eight years ago. And the first one was over there. I didn't go to that one. The next one was in Huntington. And I did compete in that one, and I got one medal. It was a bronze for the single distance. And that really kind of put fuel in me. Like, I'm an athlete. Like, I coach uh, boot camp classes, and I'm a yoga teacher. And when we started doing these competitions, I just really, really come to love the competitive aspect of it. Like, we're all friends. We all know each other. But just the, you know, mostly what I do are the longer races, And I really like kind of the mental aspect of what goes into endurance racing. It's not like go as quick as you can and then it's done and then just relax and catch your breath. It's like you're going to be doing this for so long that you're going to get to the point where you feel miserable and you have to keep going. Or you want to quit and you have to keep going. Or it's going to really hurt and you have to keep going. And I like that. I like being in that headspace of like, you know, they have this phrase that we say, um, forte a la morte which means strong till death. And it's like, look, you're going to row and you're either going to win or you're going to die from rowing. Our distance races end up being anything from 20 minutes to 45 minutes of just rowing and rowing and rowing. And I've started to love it more and more as we've had the competitions. I love forte till morte. I'm going to start using it myself. People can ask me what it means and I can tell them of my heavy Italian dialect. Half of my family heritage uh, comes from Sicily. Oh, that's, yeah, our, our, uh, mine too. Oh, that's fantastic. And so to, for anybody who's endeavoring to do this and, and giving, it, uh, giving it a shot, what do you urge them to do and, and accept to just go out and try it and have some fun? Yeah, I mean, definitely go out and try and have some fun. Like, I would say start with just learning the finesse of just regular rowing before race rowing. Like, you're really going to fall, you know, what's going to make you really fall in love with it is like the first time you see people get engaged on the boat in front of you and you're like, I am a footnote. You can go your whole life and like your best friends, your family, you may not ever really see that moment. But when they're doing it like right in front of you, like three feet away from you, you're hearing every word, you're seeing every expression. It's like a beautiful thing. You know, it's like a privilege to behold something like that. And as you get into the racing part of it, you know, as part of the, the physical aspect of it, most rowing, you're using like a lot of back muscles, a little bit of leg, but mostly you're sitting. You're standing upright for this. And because the oar never leaves the water, it's really a full body workout like like nothing I've ever experienced before. I mean, I've done all kinds of different races and obstacle courses and Spartan runs and something like that. And there's nothing quite like this. And there is nothing quite like it. And we've had very few interviews quite like this either. And you've been listening to Michael Ruffino. And he's a gondola guy, a professional, and also a competitor. And you can find Mike online by searching for Run Wild Mike and learn more about the U.S. Gondola Nationals at usgondolanationals.com. Michael Rafino's story here on Our American Story. our American stories and we're about to tell you the tale of hidden treasures in America 
The story of Forrest Fenn is one that captured the imaginations of people all over the country and the world. Here's Jesse. In the year 2010, a wealthy art dealer from Santa Fe, New Mexico, by the name of Forrest Finn, hid a treasure chest worth over a million dollars somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. First of all, I'm really not that wealthy. I mean, I can live on the interest, and that's the definition of a wealthy person, I guess. I mean, uh, I have everything I want, but I don't want very much. Forrest Finn was an Air Force pilot with the rank of major, and he was awarded the Silver Star for his service in Vietnam. I had a hard tour in Vietnam. I flew 328 combat missions in, a, in about 348 days. I was shot down twice. I took battle damage a few times. I lost some roommates. I, I lost 22 pounds and didn't even know it. And when I came home, I was, I was tired. After his time in the Air Force, Finn opened an art gallery in Santa Fe that openly sold high-end forgeries of famous paintings. I had no education. I'd been a fighter pilot all my life. So when I opened my business, I didn't have a painting, knew nothing about business, knew nothing about art. Uh, and so I had to start from scratch. My first two shows, I didn't sell so much as a book. And I finally told myself that I had a little bit of money left that I'd saved 20 years in the Air Force. I said, I'm going to spend this money advertising, and if that doesn't work, I'm going to slam the door and go do something else. And it started working for, for me. And, and I learned to play Monopoly in my art gallery. Every time, I, every time I, I sold a painting, I took the profit and bought two paintings. Then I took the profit and bought four paintings. And over a period of time, it, it took me two years before I could uh, finance my gallery out of accounts receivable. In 1988, Finn was diagnosed with cancer and came up with the idea during his illness to hide a chest full of treasure for anyone to go find. They gave me a one in five chance of living three years. And a lot of things were happening about that time. I was selling my gallery in Santa Fe and, and I had a, a lot of clients that were coming to see me to, to do different things. And it just so happened that Ralph Lauren came to my house. He collects antique Indian things like I did. And he didn't know that I had cancer. But we were standing in my, in my library and I had something that he wanted. It was a beautiful Sue and then bonnet with white ermine hang, uh, skins hanging on it and split antelope horns and it was a wonderful thing and he wanted to buy it. And I said, well, I don't want to sell it. And he said, well, you have so many of those things. He said, you can't take it with you. I said, well, then I'm not going. <laughs> and, and we laughed and changed the subject. But that night I started thinking about that. Who says I can't take it with me? Why do I have to live by everybody else's rules? If I'm going to die of cancer, I'm going to take some stuff with me. And I made up my mind. So I bought this beautiful little treasure chest, 10 inches by 10 inches and 6 inches high. Probably Romanesque, 11th or 12th century. Maybe it held a Bible or a book of days. But it was wonderful. Had a great patina on it. As for the treasure itself, Forrest Finn loaded the chest to the brim with gold, gemstones, and artifacts. There are 265 gold coins, American, mostly eagles and double eagles. Uh, there are some Middle Eastern gold coins that date to the 13th century. There's a little bottle of gold dust in there, and there, there are hundreds and hundreds of gold nuggets, mostly from Alaska, placer nuggets. Two of them are so large that 
that they're the same size as a, as a hen's egg. They weigh more than a pound apiece. And there, in this chest, I put hundreds of rubies. There are two beautiful salon sapphires. There are eight emeralds, lots of little diamonds, uh, pre-Columbian wakas, uh, 2,000-year-old bracelets, and a Tyrona and Sinu necklace that dates probably 2,500 years old. The fetishes on the necklace are made out of quartz crystal and carnelian and semi-precious stones. And it, I told myself I wanted it to be visual enough so that when a person found the treasure chest and opened it for the first time, they would just lean back and start laughing. Then came the task of hiding this treasure that was worth over a million dollars somewhere up in the Rocky Mountains, which could be anywhere from New Mexico to Alaska. And when I hid the treasure chest, I had to make two trips because the thing weighs 42 pounds. It's small, but its gold is heavy. And, and when I hit it and I was walking back to my car, I started laughing out loud. And I said, Forrest Finn, did you really do that? <laughs> but, I, but, but I had a hole card. I told myself, if I, if I decide later I didn't want to do it, I could go back and get it. But the more I thought about it, the more I said, yeah, this, this is perfect. Why, why can't I influence somebody a thousand years from now? A hundred years from now? Okay, next weekend. <laughs> if you can find it, I think it'll be worth your while. A lady reporter from Texas called me on the phone and she said, Mr. Finn, who is your audience for this strange book? I said, my audience is every redneck in Texas with a pickup truck, <laughs> a wife and 12 kids who lost his job. I said, throw a bedroll in your back of your truck and go look for the treasure and take the kids. Get the kids out of the game room, away from their little playing machines and let them breathe the sunshine and the things that the forest has to offer. Wonderful opportunity. And I, just this last week, passed 25,000 emails from people and probably 15,000 of them have told me, Mr. Finn, we're not gonna find the chest, we know that, but I wanna thank you for getting me and my kids off the couch and out into the tree. Thousands of people have searched and continue to search for the hidden treasure of Forest Fenn. And there have been at least four confirmed deaths from people who were following the cryptic clues that Fenn left behind in his book, The Thrill of the Chase. The main set of clues come in the form of a riddle, a riddle that anyone can use to find the treasure for themselves. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk. Put in below the home of Brown. From there, it's no place for the meek. The end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up here creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found a blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answers I already know. I've done it tired and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. 
The eccentric millionaire who hid a treasure chest of gold somewhere out in the Rocky Mountains for anyone to find. It's a strange and yet effective way to leave your mark on the world. And unlike so many others, Forrest Fenn would have done things completely different had he been given the chance. If I had my life to do over, I'd change nearly everything. I do the same thing over and over again. You know, <laughs> you, you read in, in these different magazines, they ask a question, what would you change in, in your life? I wouldn't change anything. Everything's been perfect. You know, I think that's such an uh, idiot thing to say, I think. I do the same thing over again. We, nothing wrong with slamming a door and starting out new again. Out of the night that covers me, dark is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. And I think that's a good place to stop, don't you? For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Ralph Waldo Emerson is a name you probably heard way back in high school, possibly elementary school. He was born in 1803, an American poet and philosopher. He began his career as a Unitarian minister in Boston, becoming famous around the world for his essays like Self-Reliance, History, The Oversoul, and Fate. He became a major name in the Transcendentalist movement where he earned the nickname The Sage of Concord. Self-Reliance is an essay written by Emerson in 1841 and it contains one of the most recurrent themes, the need for individuals to avoid conformity and false consistency and to follow their own instincts. It's the source of one of Emerson's most famous quotations, quote, A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. So stop what you're doing for just a minute, sit down and listen to the rare eloquence of an American master poet and philosopher, and now, Ralph Waldo Emerson's Self-Reliance. Familiar as the voice of the mind is to each, the highest merit we ascribe to Moses, Plato, and Milton is that they set at naught books and traditions and spoke not what men, but what they thought. A man should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismisses without notice his thought because it is his. In every work of genius we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. Great works of art have no more affecting lesson for us than this, 
They teach us to abide by our spontaneous impression with good-humoured inflexibility the most when the whole cry of voices is on the other side. Else tomorrow a stranger will say with masterly good sense precisely what we have thought and felt all the time, and we shall be forced to take with shame our own opinion from another. There is a time in every man's education when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance, that imitation is suicide, that he must take himself for better or worse as his portion, that though the wide universe is full of good, no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him but through his toil, bestowed on that plot of ground which is given to him to till. The power which resides in him is new in nature and none but he knows what that is which he can do, nor does he know until he has tried. Not for nothing one face, one character, one fact makes much impression on him, and another none. This sculpture in the memory is not without pre-established harmony. The eye was placed where one ray should fall that it might testify of that particular ray. We but half express ourselves, and are ashamed of that divine idea which each of us represents. It may be safely trusted as proportionate and of good issues, so it be faithfully imparted. But God will not have his work made manifest by cowards. A man is relieved and gay when he has put his heart into his work and done his best, but what he has said or done otherwise shall give him no peace. It is a deliverance which does not deliver. In the attempt, his genius deserts him. No muse befriends, no invention, no hope. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Accept the place the divine providence has found for you, the society of your contemporaries, the connection of events. Great men have always done so, and confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age, betraying their perception that the absolutely trustworthy was seated at their heart, working through their hands, predominating in all their being. And we are now men, and must accept in the highest mind the same transcendent destiny, and not minors and invalids in a protracted corner, nor cowards fleeing before a revolution but guides, redeemers, and benefactors, obeying the almighty efforts, and advancing on chaos and the dark. Next, Emerson speaks about the attitude of human nature by observing the world through the eyes of a child. What pretty oracles nature yields us on this text in the face and behavior of children, babes, and even brutes! That divided and rebel mind, that distrust of a sentiment because our arithmetic has computed the strength and means opposed to our purpose, these have not. Their mind being whole, their eye is as yet unconquered, when when we look in their faces we are disconcerted. Infancy conforms to nobody, all conform to it, so that one babe commonly makes four or five out of the adults who prattle and play to it. So God has armed youth and puberty and manhood no less with its own piquancy and charm, and made it enviable and gracious and its claims not to be put by, if it will stand by itself. Do not think the youth has no force because he cannot speak to you and me. Hark! In the next room his voice is sufficiently clear and emphatic. It seems he knows how to speak to his contemporaries. 
bashful or bold, then, he will know how to make us seniors very unnecessary. The nonchalance of boys who are sure of a dinner, and would disdain as much as a lord to do or say ought to conciliate one, is the healthy attitude of human nature. A boy is in the parlour what the pit is in the playhouse, independent, irresponsible. Looking out from his corner on such people and facts as pass by, he tries and sentences them on their merits, in the swift summary way of boys, as good, bad, interesting, silly, eloquent, troublesome. He cumbers himself never about consequences, about interests. He gives an independent, genuine verdict. You must court him. He does not court you. But the man is, as it were, clapped into jail by his consciousness. As soon as he has once acted or spoken with éclat, he is a committed person, watched by the sympathy or the hatred of hundreds, whose affections must now enter into his account. There is no Lethe for this. Ah, that he could pass again into his neutrality! Who can thus avoid all pledges, and, having observed, observe again from the same unaffected, unbiased, unbribable, unaffrighted innocence, must always be formidable. He would utter opinions on all passing affairs, which, being seen to be not private but necessary, would sink like darts into the ear of men, and put them in fear. These are the voices which we hear in solitude, but they grow faint and inaudible as we enter into the world. We're listening to the introduction of Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance, and we now continue with part one of our series on this essay, where Emerson so bluntly shares his views on the struggle between society and the individual. Society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. Society is a joint-stock company in which the members agree, for the better securing of his bread to each shareholder, to surrender the liberty and culture of the eater. The virtue in most request is conformity. Self-reliance is its aversion. It loves not realities and creators, but names and customs. Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. He who would gather immortal points must not be hindered by the name of goodness, but must explore if it be goodness. Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. Absolve you to yourself, and you shall have the suffrage of the world. I remember an answer which, when quite young, I was prompted to make to a valued adviser who was wont to importune me with the dear old doctrines of the Church. On my saying, What have I to do with the sacredness of traditions if I live wholly from within? My friend suggested, But these impulses may be from below, not from above. I replied, they do not seem to me to be such, but if I am the devil's child, I will live then from the devil. No law can be sacred to me but that of my nature. Good and bad are but names, very readily transferable to that or this. The only right is what is after my constitution, the only wrong what is against it. A man is to carry himself in the presence of all opposition as if everything were titular and ephemeral but he. 
I am ashamed to think how easily we capitulate to badges and names, to large societies and dead institutions. Every decent and well-spoken individual affects and sways me more than is right. I ought to go upright and vital, and speak the rude truth in all ways. And you were listening, by the way, to Bob Newfeld, and you can go on YouTube and hear him record so many of the great American works of art, all in the public domain. And you've been listening to his reading of Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And we dig into some of the American classics sometimes, folks. You've also heard Bob read Common Sense by Thomas Paine. And a lot of this writing is as relevant today as it was when it was written back then. And that's why we bring you these things, because what's old is new and what's new is old. This is Our American Stories, Ralph Waldo Emerson's story, in a way, all through his epic essay, Self-Reliance.